Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks Alan Shearer can still do a job up top for Newcastle. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. Something a little different this week as we take a look at some of the off-the-pitch topics in the game. The Premier League's controversial decision to introduce pay-per-view games has inspired meaningful boycotts and general outrage from fans. The standard of refereeing is under the microscope more than ever, and what could each side potentially add to their numbers in the January window, starting with the top six? Kicking us off, a look at the pay-per-view system that's been brought in, and a bit of a breakdown for our listeners outside the UK that might not be so familiar with this system. Yeah, Cam, I think uh, meaningful boycotts is quite a generous term for uh, the backlash that it's received so far. Um, And... Yeah, so to break it down quickly, essentially what's going to happen is half of the games being played are going to be shown exclusively uh, on a pay-per-view basis. And each game will cost the same, which is £14.95. Yeah, so so £14.95 per game, meaning that if you want to watch, you know, if four games have been allotted to pay-per-view status in a single, you know, Saturday or Sunday, you have to pay £14.95 each time instead of once for the whole package. Um, just onto your comment about meaningful boycotts, uh, as, as we'll develop a, a little bit later, I meant more, um, you know, about some of the actions that fans have been going through. For example, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of clubs from, you know, different areas of the country donating to different charities and food banks to the tune of £14.95 a go. Um, for example, Liverpool fans so far have raised, raised £120,000 for North Liverpool Food Bank, and all of that has come from fans donating £14.95 a go instead of paying for the game against Sheffield United. Um, Newcastle United have had Newcastle United fans uh, food bank groups made more than 60k Arsenal fans have donated more than 30,000 pounds to a local charity Islington Cares Leeds fans have donated 57,000 pounds so that's what I meant by meaningful boycott obviously there has been a little bit more of a (laughs) an angry outpouring online and stuff but I do think it's one of those things especially because football culture and sort of how it's tied into hooliganism and fans being a bit drunken and loutish I think it's really good when you do see these examples of fans coming out and doing something to better their community and speak out against you know this issue in a way that shows that they care about their community as well yeah you're absolutely right it's um a really nice blend of uh being both stubborn and incredibly contrary uh, as well as being as you said um good for the community so i'm definitely here for it and it's definitely raised a massive point which is how much money could they be making as a uh, i guess as a premier league if these matches were priced fairly. Yeah, and I think a big part of the reason why people think it's very unfair is obviously, uh, as well as the fact that you're already paying for BT Sports and Sky Sports and Amazon Prime if you want to see all the matches anyway, is that not only have some of the games that were going to be allocated to one of those three have been added into the pay-per-view system, but if you compare it to the price of Premier League games in other countries... It's just extremely exorbitant. One example that's been going viral and that's been pointed out by the company themselves has been highlighted by the Australian sport network Optus Sport. Uh, And they pointed out that they have a package where you can watch every Premier League game in a season for 139 Australian dollars, which works out to £75.40. As a comparison... With the current pay-per-view system, which has 170 games, if you're looking to watch every single game of the league, you're looking at £66 a month for Sky Sports plus a £30 setup fee, which works out to £558. So that's just the Sky Sports games, and already it's £558 versus £75. 
Then you want to add another £25 a month with £20 set up for BT Sport, because of course some of the games are only shown there. That's adding another £220. And then again, you've got the games shown exclusively on Amazon, adding another £80 to the annual fee. So even before we look at the pay-per-view you know, additions, fans in the UK are having to pay £858 a season, which compared to the Australian price, and I'm sure there are lots of similar prices in this same sort of band, it's over £800, uh, sorry, it's just, uh, just under £800 more. Then you've got to look at the remaining 170 games added as pay-per-view exclusives. So 170 by £14.95 comes to £2,541.50. <laughs> Altogether, if you're a fan, and I, I appreciate that the vast majority of fans are not wanting to be, going to be watching every single game. Most people are going to be mostly wanting to watch their team and maybe some of the big games. But hypothetically, you're looking at £3,399.50 to watch every single game, which is £3,300 more than fans elsewhere. Um, Optus Sport, who were the, the company that pointed this out, even sort of quite comically highlighted that it would work out cheaper to fly to Australia, stay in a hostel on the Bondi Beach, spend all the summer there, and watch the games with them. Yeah, which, again, is my favourite kind of statistic when, when they do things like that. It is just absolutely baffling, and it makes no sense beyond, you know, where, where this money is going. Um, Interesting things to note are that this was decided at a Premier League shareholders meeting. Um, so of the 20 clubs, 19 voted in favour and just one, being Leicester, um, said no. Uh, Premier League executive Richard Masters said last week that it was defensible, which is a pretty interesting point to start on. <laughs> Not quite the strong foot um, that you might be hoping for. And he also claimed that the broadcasters were the price setters. Yeah. However... That comes in stark contrast with the fact that it's also being claimed that all the profits are going to the clubs and not the broadcasters. So where the extra money is being spent, it's quite hard to work out. Is it that the broadcasters are setting high prices for the amount of money that they need in order to not turn a loss? And then the extra profit on top is the only amount that the Premier League clubs make? Or is it that the Premier League are defining how much profit they need to be making? And then the broadcasts are calculating that price. It's not really clear. Well, it comes in tandem with the fact that both BT Sport and Sky Sports have come out and said they want the model to be scrapped because they have concerns that it's damaging their reputation. And certainly, you know, it's something that we've talked about with reference to Project Big Picture or the European Premier League. It's really not a great time to, to appear as if you're a bit money grabbing. Everyone in the, in the world at the moment is sort of looking at their finances and some people are really struggling to make ends meet. And if you're adding several thousand pounds onto you know i would argue it is basically a right to watch football there is a little bit of, of something you've got to pay but if you want to watch certain teams but to make it so expensive it is really outrageous at any time but especially at the moment um, and i think that bt and sky have have you know become wise to that and the premier league in classic premier league fashion are sort of the last ones to to get the reading of the room well yeah i mean 19 clubs voting for this which has been across the board completely vilified by everyone everywhere mm -hmm just shows how out of touch they are and it really i honestly i don't know why they have tried to make it this expensive because surely you'd make more money if it was cheaper if it was a third of the price you get so many more than three times the people tuning in um personally i, I just don't understand it 
Well, I think it's crucial to note that already, you know, we've only had a few games so far, but three of the Premier, Premier League pay-per-view games have had less than 10,000 purchases. And if you think about how many people are in the UK and what proportion of that are football fans, granted, okay, maybe you're not going to have the entire population of the country tuning into, for example, Fulham-Sheffield, but you'd still expect that at least a million people are going to be watching that game. So for less than 10,000 people to be purchasing a game represents a massive blow to the, just, just the viewership of the game. And even if, you know, you're, you're not going to be getting as much money up front, there's still advertising to factor in. Advertisers are going to look at things like this and go, oh, okay, these people aren't watching the games anymore because you've put a huge price tag on it. it it's going to hit it massively. And I think one of the things you've got to look at with, with the pay-per-view um you know, model that's been introduced is something that I think we saw happen with the music industry in the late 90s and the early noughties. And I think what you do when you start putting what consumers consider to be high prices on a commodity is you get people moving to the black market. Already, you know, I'm pretty sure every football fan has had a time when they've been caught loose there somewhere, either not at their house or they're out and about somewhere and they've had to watch football on a stream. It's not something the Premier League want to happen. It does happen from time and again. If you make these games become 1495, people are just going to be doing that universally to the point where people might start migrating uh, even away from, from BT Sports and Sky Sport, which I think might be behind part of their reason um, of sort of condemning this. And I think what is interesting about the parallel to the music industry is that you looked at the music industry in the 90s and the noughties and they were getting absolutely slaughtered by websites like Napster, LimeWire, places where you could download music for free because people either just weren't going to buy physical copies of CDs anymore or didn't want to pay the 99p per song. It's only in recent years that they've learned to sort of catch up with the times and transition. I mean, think about how everyone consumes music these days. No one buys songs on iTunes anymore. No one goes and gets a CD. You listen to your music on Apple Music via streaming or Spotify. And I think the Premier League is kind of making the same mistake that the music industry did, but they're making it about 20 years later, which is just, I mean, if that's not telling you everything you need to know about the Premier League, I don't know what will. Yeah, you're right. I think um, some interesting things to take from that one is, I think, the, the real difference in my mind between music and these platforms like Spotify and iTunes and the Premier League is that when you watch a Premier League match, it's done, it's over. You might be tempted to go back in a month's time or a week's time to look at some highlights, but those are things you can readily get elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas with streaming platforms for music, the, the way that they tie you in is because you create like your whole... Um, library of music and at that point you're completely invested in it and you can't leave it so they don't have that same pull that music platforms do um, which i think is probably why people are so i guess wary of committing the other issue is imagine if half the music on the market was being played by spotify and half was being played by itunes and you had to pay for both Mm -hmm. you'd naturally get people massively complaining and saying well, this is ridiculous. Why can't there just be some platform where I can listen to all the music? Um, so it's being run from the from the bottom up in a really, really idiotic manner, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard not to see it as money grabbing. The difficulty here is that it's become tied up in all of this when realistically what this pay-per-view represents is a, a change from clubs needing match day income revenue to them needing to get more streaming revenue. But it's become tied up in all of this and there are no clear winners in this market. Yes, you're saying like BT Sport and Sky Sports are getting wise to it, but I don't think they are because I still think all this has done is show how 
dissatisfied everyone already is with the current system. I personally think it's horrendous Mm -hmm. that you have to pay for multiple platforms and pay for specific games. Um, And I I thought it was horrendous before pay-per-view. So I I don't think that it's a big change in my mind. I think it's just, I guess, we're just further down. Something that underlines it. I mean, I I would slightly disagree with some of the points you've made, but um, I agree with some of the stuff you said, but I'll take it through in order just in terms of looking at the comparison between, you know, the the music streaming change and football. I, I do agree that people rarely go back to look at football retroactively, but being able to watch something in quality live is immensely valuable. And that's the reason why BT and Sky Sports have subscriptions, despite being so expensive. And I think that in response to you saying people have a playlist that pulls them in and there's not that much incentive in terms of a football service, I would argue there is in the form of watching your team play or, or, or even watching the other teams play. You've got this sort of you know, I am drawn to the TV every Friday, Saturday and Sunday, almost like a zombie because it's my routine. So if there was a new system that that drew it in, I'd, I'd be, you know, bound to it. And one thing that I found really interesting at the end of last season and that's coming a bit this season is seeing Amazon get involved. And I think you can look at music or another comparison is TV. Most people of our generation and of all generations, to be honest with you, in this day and age, consume their content with a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. And I think that the Premier League, if they were smart and if they knew how to get ahead of the times, would form some sort of exclusive system. They could even, you know, it would take a lot of paperwork, but they could even do it, launch it internationally so that they would receive, you know, a smaller amount, but a larger per consumer, but a larger cut to have like a football Netflix or a football online type thing. And everyone could pay for one thing. You could watch all your games online. You could have someone like Amazon, for example, all of the games, I don't know if you've managed to catch any of them on Prime, but have been fantastic quality. One of the few things that, you know, still keeps illegal streams in the dark is they're almost always two minutes behind they're in foreign language commentary and oftentimes the streams just go down so it's not great quality but if you had something like an amazon or a netflix or some other centralized premier league football tv for example that you could watch i could see fans piling into that um Obviously, the problem there would be, you know, keeping Sky and BT Sport happy, but they could maybe coordinate it, help, you know, do do part of that. I just think that there is a way, much in the same fashion that the music industry and indeed the TV industry have pivoted towards online streaming with one centralized price that the football industry could pivot to a, you know, a culture that is becoming increasingly online. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I think the point that I was trying to make there is that the difference is there's no loyalty to the platform. Fans support their clubs and the platforms are the way that they do them. Whereas when I talk about my music, I love Spotify. I think it's great. I use it for everything. I will happily talk about how much I enjoy Spotify. It's not just about the music. It's about me enjoying the platform and how committed I am to the platform. Do you you think that perhaps... Have you ever heard any um, fans say that they are enjoying the experience of being a part of BT Sport or being a part of Sky Sports. No, but 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 no but, but but I think the the point I think we almost maybe agree here. The the point that I would make in contrast to that is I don't think anyone talks about how much they enjoy a Spotify-esque platform for football because it doesn't yet exist. And I think that if we did have something I think come in. The issue is there's so much power involved in Spotify. If they decided to up their prices by 50%, I'd have to seriously consider whether or not I could keep at it. I mean, I wouldn't want to because I would want to boycott the decision. But at the same time, it has all my music. I'm tied in. Whereas if they raise the prices, if I was a football fan, I'd go, well, I just don't want to pay that anymore. Mm. You've definitely got to find an intelligent price point. And I do think that 
that is something that you know there is an aspect of your Apple Music or your Spotify's where you are invested. I, I, I get what you're saying now from from that perspective, but at the same time, I do think most people would rather go for a slightly pricier than free, obviously, uh, you know, option over streaming because at the moment there are no streams that are anywhere close to as good as the qualities you see on TV. So what these two things need to do is meet in the middle because otherwise if you do what the Premier League are doing now and charge £14.95, you know, less than 10,000 people paid for games like Sheffield Fulham. Do I think that less than 10,000 people actually watch Sheffield Fulham? Not a chance. People just went on learn to whatever and watched it. So that's just revenue lost. If you pivoted instead to, to an online, you know, provider, you could have people using that and, and, and at least you'd be getting, say, £15 a month as a subscription fee. Yeah, no, I definitely agree um, that the offering needs to change and it needs to be a monthly subscription. And there's a real value to be had in monthly subscriptions, which is why, as you mentioned, all of these companies are moving towards it, not only ones like Netflix and, and things like that, but also Amazon Prime. Um, it now is a streaming service, but its its whole core ethos is around becoming a massive subscription service, mm-hmm. you know, beyond just the streaming side of it. So, yeah, I mean, the, the amount of, of money that companies can make from having fixed revenue from subscribers is massive i also think and i appreciate that what i'm about to say might not represent the average fan and this might just be me going a little bit off the deep end but (laughs) you know how you were talking about how people wouldn't necessarily go back and watch matches i am interested enough in other leagues to the point where i could watch myself a hearty good bit of premier league football and then on a slow monday just binge watch some Serie A and just watch like six of the games if there was like a Netflix equivalent the equivalent for when you sort of sit in and binge watch an entire season of something would be me looking at like all of the Serie A games or watching like seven Juventus games in a row just to like if there was a player that I thought was going to come to the Premier League just watch that back to back I appreciate that's not everyone and that might just be me you know being a bit raid man but hey if anyone wants to sell me that service I'll pay no I mean to be fair I kind of I do see what you're saying and I think I probably would do the same in that I would happily go and watch games and um, I definitely agree in that in that sense so it's tricky I mean I think the main point is that 14.95 per game on top of all of these extra prices is ridiculous and no logical person with their feet on the ground could expect fans to pay that much but there were no logical people with their feet on the ground in the room when the decision was being made apart from apparently Leicester. Um, so I just I, I just think, how can you look at we that? We are where we you are. Know, like, for, for the, the total fee was, what was it, £3,399.50. The median income in... Uh, oh, sorry, so the, the, the sort of average income in the UK is, I think it's £26,000 a year, and that is probably going to be down from last I checked because of obviously the year that everyone's had and there's such a high rate of unemployment and people who are uncertain with their jobs. So, you know, nearly four grand. That's a huge proportion of it. It's just how... Well, that's before taxes. Well. well, exactly, exactly. But just looking at that as just a, even just as a proportion is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's wild. Um, it makes no financial sense whatsoever. Um, and... Again, you just hope that the response will be better than the initial attempt. 
Um, I find myself saying that a lot these days. Uh, yeah, but- I, think, I think there's an answer there. I think there's an answer there, which is, you know, using the internet in some way, whether it is some sort of centralized streaming service or just something that is more fan friendly, something that is accessible, something that people will be happy to get involved with. I'm just some guy. I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have a, a job as like the, the director of, of scheduling and planning for the Premier League. So it shouldn't be me or you or, or anyone coming up with that. But surely if we can think of these little ideas on the fly, there should be some much smarter people and much more qualified positions that can make, you know, ones that actually work. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the main issue is that the, the bubble is bursting mm-hmm. and it's been on the verge of it for a long time in the sense that fans for many years now have been becoming more and more disenfranchised with their clubs because they're getting priced out. Um, and the Premier League survives because of its international standing. And because for a lot of the top clubs, at least, they're kind of mostly held up by tourists and by big businesses um, coming to watch the games. And all of this ill will and bad sentiment that clubs have nurtured with their fan bases is coming to a head because suddenly they've, they've you know, lost all of their income on the day. And what the way that they're trying to combat it is not in keeping with anything that fans are able to meaningfully engage with so there's it's there's been a, an imbalance for a long time and now there's no there's no easy solution i don't think i think that's a really good point and I, because it definitely is true if you're for example chelsea fc you don't have to worry enormously about engaging with your fans on the basis of getting gate receipts because you go to any chelsea match you go to stanford bridge anytime they play a game and it's very clearly going to be a lot of people who've never been there before. They're coming out of the club shop with bags full of shirts, etc., etc., which is great. You absolutely love to see that. But it does perhaps foster less of an environment of sort of engaging with the fans who are sort of, you know, always going to be there and there through thick and thin, which is, you know, we are now at thin. So these clubs are now looking to these fans who sort of are local to them, certainly in the UK, to pay these massive fees because we aren't having any tourist income and they're getting the clap back. Yeah, and the tricky thing is, like, I would want to support my club if I could. Um, I think, you know, it's something that we should do. And as someone who enjoys watching them, I want to, you know, show my appreciation and contribute. But at the same time, I feel so disillusioned by the amount of money that these players get paid that I, I almost resent the fact that it's expected to be held up on my charity or my contributions when there's such a a disconnect between the reality of the players that I watch and my reality. Yeah, no, no, 100%. I think that is definitely something that a lot of fans are feeling. Like, why is, you know, the big old Premier League and all these big Premier League clubs reaching their hand into my pocket when I'm a guy, just a normal guy, earning a normal salary, and they're a multi-billion pound company? <laughs> yeah, but which is tough because the flip side is, you know, if it, if they weren't like that, I would happily contribute some money to keep them afloat, but I don't want to because it should, it's not my responsibility. Yeah, well, I think there's been a parallel, for example, with non-league. There have been quite a few non-league teams um, around about 
uh, the UK that have been doing streaming online and they've had various problems because a lot of the time it's just been a guy with a camcorder. But I've seen a really big uh, bit of community support for a lot of non-league sites that have been charging 10 quid for a game on their website. So I think that sort of backs up your theory that people are a lot more willing to stand up and help out the club when two conditions are fulfilled. One, they feel like the club engages with them as a community on a regular basis. And two, there is a genuine need for the money because a lot of these non-league clubs, they do have like, you know, 50k in the coffers, if that. Very true. Yeah, I mean, I think um, my problem is the problem of someone who is a Premier League fan and not a, an EFL fan. Because, you know, if I was, if I had a local club, I would 100% be putting as much money as I was able to into it. Um, because of how much it, it would mean to me. Yeah. Um, did you hear the uh, the story about um, and the game between Inverness and Caledonian Thistle last week? Uh, I did not. So um, they have a... Um, a £10 price for to buy a ticket to watch it online and they have an automatic camera which is programmed to follow the ball at all times and oh, I think I have kept having this. problems where the uh, the camera was struggling to follow the play and it wasn't always focusing on the ball and they realised halfway through the game that the reason why it wasn't doing what it should be doing is because it kept focusing on one of the bald linesmen instead <laughs> Get so these fans that were paying like 10 quid to watch the game just um, like ended up watching this like middle-aged bald dude running on the side of the pitch instead. God, imagine if Man City had been playing away at Caledonian Thistle. The <laughs> camera wouldn't have known where to look. <laughs> That's true. Um, should we have a look at... And Pep. Should we have the uh, look at the first three of our signings at each top side and what we think? And this is going to be our our demonstration after bashing the Premier League for being inept at finances. Our attempt to try to look at how the Premier League clubs, at least in the top six so far, will be using their finances in the January window. There you go. A pundit with many hats is what we are. <laughs> uh, we're, go- we're going out of the um, back uh, backseat driving ball uh, boardroom and into the uh, manager's chair. Absolutely. So let's start with Arsenal. Yep, starting with... So uh, just, just to be clear, um, when we talk about the top six, we're talking about the traditional top six. Uh, so nothing to do with, you know, the, the league as it's been in the last year or as it is now, but who people think of as the top six of old, I guess, which is Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man U, Man City and Spurs. Yep, absolutely. So starting off uh, alphabetically with Arsenal, what's, what's a signing that you think that Arsenal absolutely need to make in January? I think um, despite being a really not a big fan of Gabriel, their new centre-back. I just think he's David Luiz in miniature. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that in terms of where their energies are being wasted, it's an attack. Because I think they have some great players. I mean, they have Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, but they're currently unable to make the most out of him. And mm-hmm. so, sure. for me, I think the most impactful one signing would be either, I guess, some sort of attacking-minded player. Mm-hmm. I've gone for a winger this time, but I could also very much easily see an attacking midfielder filling that same role. But I'd quite like to see Danny Ceballos leaning into that a little bit more now that Thomas Partey is in the midfield. Yep, yeah, okay, interesting. So the the winger that I've picked is also one that can operate as a striker. Um, it's someone who has had a big move touted for him for many years. Um, and one that we've talked about in recent 
uh, episodes, and it is Wilfred Zaha. Oh, okay, interesting. That's that's definitely that's one that has been you know he's been linked with Arsenal in the past. He's an Arsenal fan, um, so definitely would enjoy that move. And as you say, has looked for a while. Like personally, I would love to see him get another big move. I feel like he was done a little bit dirty. Um, in his time at Man United, or perhaps did himself a little dirty, depending on what you believe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, okay, interesting. So how, how, do you, how do you see him fitting in, in terms of, you know, Arsenal have looked to have Saka and Pepe as their wingers recently, and sometimes Aubameyang. Do you see him, you know, pushing Saka back to left back, or being part of a rotational arrangement? I think um, this is a tricky one, because personally, I'm not sure if Aubameyang's best position is at striker or at left wing. Mm-hmm. I think that in a perfect world, he'd have the freedom to move between the two. And I think that when he's playing on the left, you need a consistent striker. And then when he's playing in the middle, he can't have all of the creative burden on himself. So I thought that probably the best balance of the two would be someone who is Premier League proven, a consistently good finisher of the ball, and one that it has a real capacity to create as well. Yeah, no, I, th- I think Wilfried Zaha has all of those properties and I don't think it's by mistake that he's been linked with the club so far. Um, yeah, I, I agree. That'd be, a, that'd be a really good signing. Do you think it's something that Arsenal would have the finances to pull off in January or something that Crystal Palace would be willing to uh, you know, allow happen? It's, it's so tricky. I mean, I think that Crystal Palace would try their hardest, obviously, not to lose him, especially in the middle of the season. Um it's also always in, I always find it impossible to work out how much money Arsenal actually have <laughs> hiding in their coffers behind uh, Stan Kroenke's um, bed set. So, I mean, personally, I could see it happening. I think it would be a real statement of intent for Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that they could maybe be required to fork out about 50 to 60 million, mm-hmm. in which case, is there a better player out there? I'm not sure. I think I think the main thing for me is that Zaha would represent a safe choice. I think that what they need is someone who is proven and that will come in and do a job because they've thrown money at different places too often in the past and it hasn't always paid off. I think they need a sure thing. Mm. Interesting. Um, for my player, I've, I've gone in some ways similar, in some ways a, a little different. I have uh, gone for a player that can play in, in, a, in a numerous sort of positions. Uh, you know, he can play as a winger. He can play sometimes the second striker. He can play as a number eight. He can play as a number ten. Uh, and that's Dominic Soberlie of uh, Red Bull Salzburg. Uh, and uh, you know, I think it's obvious to everyone who watches that the area Arsenal have been crying out for this season is creativity. And obviously the signing they look to make this uh, this summer was Hussein Awar. He's looking to be about 50 million. If that price tag is still too much in January, which it may well be, and also maybe inflated by Leon going, well, we didn't want to lose him in summer. We definitely don't want to lose him now in the middle of a campaign. Um, I think Subalai could be a really interesting alternative. He's very young. He's only 20 years old, but he's already played a full season in the Austrian Bundesliga and he's one of the star players in that side. Um, again, I think he's really versatile. He, you know, Salzburg are a team that can adapt their formation a lot sometimes between games sometimes even during games so I think that that would really serve Arsenal's ability to if they wanted to have another player wide and you know shove Aubameyang inwards he could play on that left-hand side if they wanted to have Ceballos sitting in a three-man midfield he could again play maybe in in a further forwards role in a diamond or he could you know play again uh, to hang hang off the striker's shoulder 
or he could just play as a number eight in a, in a three-man midfield himself. I think that having a versatile midfielder is really important for an Arsenal that seems to like playing a 4-3-3 at home and a 3-4-3 away and against tougher oppositions. Because I look at some of the other you know suggestions that have been made of your sort of traditional attacking midfielders, sort of number 10s, which I, I don't know if there's a place for a player like that in, in Arsenal's 11 currently, or just an out-and-out number 10. Um, I think it has to be someone who's a little bit more... Um, more versatile and also you know Salzburg some people might look at that and go the Austrian Bundesliga are people going to be able to take a step up from that level but you know you need to look no further than Sadio Mane who came from that league he went over to Southampton from Salzburg the same team Um, and I think because you're getting them from the Austrian Bundesliga it's going to represent a much cheaper option if you think about the fact that Timo Werner went to Chelsea for 50 million that was from Leipzig uh, who were the larger of the two sides and obviously playing the German Bundesliga I think that you could pick up a player like Sobolai for maybe in the region of 10 to 15 maybe 20 million which I think is in Arsenal's wheelhouse yeah it's different it's it's difficult I think the the one thing to note would be that I guess Red Bull as a franchise like to keep their players within the franchise especially the ones that look like they're going to make it big so I'm sure that Red Bull Salzburg probably have ideas already of moving him over to Leipzig within a couple of years especially if he continues on his trajectory so for that reason he might cost a little bit more money than you would expect um, yeah they, they can yeah, the they're, they're not terrible that- at it I, I do think that they they like to keep players in the club when they can so they're never going to be like a feeder type club who see a big club come with a bit of money and go oh but at the same time they're quite good at they always seem to have a new crop of players and that's because they invest the the revenue they make quite well so i, I don't think they turn down you know, a bird in the hand, as it were, for two in the bush, which is potentially Sobolai becoming great there. Yeah, that's fair. I think um, the other thing that would be tricky is just that we're talking about a signing in the middle of the season, Mm -hmm. right? And in in my mind, the emphasis there is on players that can come in immediately and impact because they don't need a really detailed um, pre-season and they can just enter the starting lineup or the squad mm-hmm. and add value. Do you think he's that player yet? I think that Arsenal have a lot of players in positions that would allow him to be sort of edged in. I, th- I could very easily see, you know, you've got between Saka and Pepe to and Aubameyang, you know, when he's played there, you've got positions for the wingers that could play that when he was there. You've obviously got Danny Ceballos and sometimes they don't even play a, a number eight in that midfield. So I think Arsenal could afford to... If I'm being brutally honest, I don't think Arsenal are heading for big things this season. And I think that a signing here, giving a player like this a, a good half season, could allow them to sort of wean him in for the start of the next season and, and really hit the ground running um, is where I think they are. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, definitely a talented player and definitely addresses a long-term concern of Arsenal's. Uh, moving on to Chelsea, our next team. Uh, you started with the last one, so I'll go with this one. I think that sure. Chelsea would do really well to pick up Manuel Akanji of Dortmund. Um, I think that Chelsea have been really shaky at the back this season. And obviously, Mondi has come in and he's been a massive improvement on Kepa. I think he's played six games and conceded one goal. He's got four clean sheets, two in his first game at Stamford Bridge, which equals Petr Cech. So he's been fantastic. But... I still think the centre-back area needs a bit of improvement. Neither Christensen nor Rudiger, in my mind, have really announced themselves as powerful, reliable centre-backs. Zuma has, you know, he's back and forth all the time. Thiago Silva is 36. It is an area that Chelsea are very invested in already. 
but I don't think that's something that stopped Chelsea in the past, you know, looking at attacking midfielders or wingers. Um, and I think that he could come in and, and, and do really well, particularly because he's a player who, in Dortmund's system, he plays in the back four, he plays in the back three. He's played both as a left back and a right back, as well as being a centre back. And I think that would help him fit into that Chelsea back three that sometimes sees, for example, Aspilicueta playing as a centre back. Um, I also think that Dortmund are another side that, a little bit like Salzburg, they are always willing to listen to you know, reasonable offers. Obviously, United and, and Sancho was, was one very extreme example. But for the most part, sure, I think yeah. they're always listening to listen to reasonable offers if they have a player who's coming in to replace them or if they have someone in mind. And I think they do have that in Dan Axel Zagadou, who's played 32 games over the last two seasons. I think he's ready to step up to the first 11. They've also been playing Emre Chan and Lucas Piszczek as centre-backs in the back three. So I, I don't think that this would be you know, for Dortmund, a huge gaping, you know, loss in the middle of their squad if they were to lose in mid-season. Yeah, fair enough. It's That's a good realistic signing. I think um, he would definitely come in and provide a really solid backbone to what is not currently a solid defence. Uh, I also have gone in a similar vein, um, although uh, I have been a little bit more ambitious. Yeah, I think Akanji is, is a great signing. My one concern would maybe be he's not particularly good in the air. Um, according to who scored. Uh, and I know Chelsea have conceded a lot of goals from set pieces already this season. So I think maybe they would be looking for someone who is good aerially. Um, but he's also, you know, he's a technical player and he's someone that I think would also be tactically smart enough to not just be a reactive centre-back like Rudiger or like Zuma but one who was a little smarter and read the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, that's, that's right, I hear that. What, what about you? Who have um, you got for? So uh, in my mind, I'm Roman Abramovich. I'm on the yacht. <laughs> who am I commissioning? And I want uh, Diod Upamecano. Ah, okay. So, I mean, I guess similar in that we've both gone for centre-backs with, I guess, not, not a different presence. Mm-hmm. I think both are pretty strong physically but also a lot of their strength is in reading the game and in playing I think Upamecano is a little better at playing out from the back mm-hmm. uh, and I think that would benefit Chelsea well as well because I think that that's something that they could stand to improve um, I think also that when they signed Timo Werner that's a clear indication that you know their system is a little al- aligned with Leipzig's system um, and Upamecano is a player who's familiar with that system, so I think he would maybe slot in a little nicer. Again, we've both picked centre-backs with an eye on the future. I agree with you there that while they've invested money in it and they've just picked up Thiago Silva, what they need is someone who is going to be there for the long term, and they haven't addressed that concern. And you saw that problem when Chelsea decided to bench Thiago Silva so that he could play in midweek and then conceded several goals. So yeah, I think I think we're on the same lines. I just decided that my guy would uh, spend eighty-five million instead of twenty-five. <laughs> you know what? You you actually I was gonna say, oh, you know, in January our, our club gonna spend that much. You wouldn't put it past Roman if he, if he's in a mood like he was this summer, just to just to whip out the checkbook and slam it down. You wouldn't put it past him to to spend big on a player like that. So yeah, fair enough. Um, looking at Liverpool, uh, who. Maybe, you know, the hardest one of these teams to look at where you add because obviously they've won the league last season. They were the best team by miles. They won the Champions League the season before that. 
it's you know they haven't really lost any of their key players so it can be maybe a bit of a difficult question to look at how do you improve that side um so i'm going to put it to you first <laughs> what do you think they need to do to improve <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, this is going to be a common thread because I think I've picked, oh, it's, it's, it's one of three. I've gone for another centre-back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and scouring the market is quite a hard one for Liverpool because I guess I'll talk about the, the profile of the player that I think that they should sign first and then I'll tell you who I've picked. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think they need is someone who is in the mid to late stage of their career, okay. who has a lot of experience both domestically and in Europe and who has a really solid head on his shoulders, is not going to lose concentration at the drop of a hat, and is going to be able to help marshal that defence. Because what we've seen so far is that there's no real leader in that um, back four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I have gone for Stefan de Vrij, or de Vrij, from um, Inter Milan. Now, I'm going to say, just at the beginning... I think it'd be very hard to prize him away from Antonio Conte's Inter because Conte is building something there and De Vrij is definitely a part of that. Um, but he's 28, he's Dutch, so I think he'd get on really well with um, Virgil van Dijk. Mm. He has a great mentality and he's good at passing and I just think that he would he would slot in quite well. That's actually that's really interesting, especially when you mentioned that part about um, you know being Dutch and that that sort of set a bit of a shiver down my spine. Think about that partnership when Van Dijk is is fit again. Having those two, it could really be a you know a force to be reckoned with. Because I do think uh, you are correct in identifying maybe one of Liverpool's few weak spots as being the centre back that sits next to Van Dijk. And I think a lot of the time, because Van Dijk is so good, he almost. Defenders who play next to him get what I like to call PK syndrome, which is how PK just looked way better than he was for like five years because he was playing next to Carlos Puyol. And I think um, that... <laughs> yeah, very true. I think um, I guess the only potential issue would be how well he would transition from Conte's system to um, Liverpool's system mm-hmm. because Liverpool play a really high pressing line. But I thought that um, De Vrij played in enough teams and in enough, enough different tactical systems that he would be able to make that transition. Well, you know what's funny here is that we have chosen different players and we've even gone for different positions, but we've actually gone from players from the same team. So maybe that hints uh, subconsciously at us associating these two sides in terms of um, how the players are drilled. Uh, because I have I have gone for Marcelo Brozovic, also from Inter, um, Ah. And I think that obviously centre-back is one very obvious area where Liverpool need to reinforce at the moment, especially with the Van Dijk injury. But I think that one other area that Liverpool could really stand to reinforce, uh, and we've discussed this before, is in that midfield role, the Henderson sort of area. Um, And I think that they could maybe even stand to upgrade Jordan Henderson. I don't think that you can replace his leadership qualities. Careful, boy. <laughs> I don't think you can necessarily improve on his leadership qualities, but I think that Brozovic is the kind of player who, because he's so versatile, he could either play as a replacement for Henderson or, or cover, depending on how he sort of fit into the team, or he could play alongside him and you would have a really, really, really sturdy team that would just run and run and run the midfield. If you ask any regular viewers of Serie A to use two words to describe him, they're going to say hard worker. He is just one of those guys, he always makes runs. I think he has the, the highest distance covered of any player on the inside this season, which is quite an accolade to, to have if you watch that than play um you know I, I think he could play alongside Henderson and just really nail down a defense if they had Fabinho as well if they were playing for example in a game against 
I mean, it's kind of difficult to say who would give them a good game at the moment, but say Bayern Munich and they had that midfield three, even then you'd go, they might not be getting much of the much of the goal today. Um, and they could also play it, you know, in a way that would be allow Thiago to play further forwards, free him up a little bit creatively. I think that it would introduce a lot more options into their team, as well as if Jordan Henderson does get injured or if, you know, he's, he's getting on a little bit now, if he does start to slow down a little bit, they'll have a player who, Rosovic is 27, he'll be able to slot in, continue that role, and arguably improve it as well. Yeah, I think you're bang on. I think um, it's a really good uh, description of that. I think Liverpool could definitely benefit from a very tactically versatile player because all of their midfielders, of which there are many, and many quality options, they're all very different. So one that could slot in here and there, do different jobs, um, could well be the water carrier that you know, would complete Liverpool's um, squad. So, yeah, like it. Mm. Well, shall we take a quick break for useless trivia before resuming our one signing in January with the next three teams uh, and move into that? Let's do it, yeah. I, uh, I've i got quite a fun one for you. Okay. Um, which is uh, continuing the, the trend that I've been doing of going back into history. <laughs> um, did you know that during the 1970 World Cup... Mm-hmm captain of England at the time Bobby Moore was playing while being released on bail because he'd been arrested for shoplifting <laughs> there you go and who says us English uh, difficult characters God, it's honestly you couldn't write this stuff um, so he got arrested for stealing a bracelet in Bogota um, before leading the defence for England's uh, World Cup defence of the title. That's, that's um, not a place you want to get tangled up with the police, especially not in the 70s. <laughs> apparently, so apparently he went shopping with Bobby Charlton, uh-huh. browsing for gifts um, to take home. And he was in this jewellery shop. And according to like the, the post analysis, like many years later, they've worked out that what happened was as they walked out, all the alarm bells went off and they got arrested. And Apparently what happened was there was a female thief in the shop who had put something in his pocket and then like put all the attention on him, shouted at him going, it's a thief, stop him, as he walked out and then made off with her own prize. Um, so, you know, there's all this back and forth between the embassies and stuff like that. Um, but he apparently was cleared uh, of, of all charges in the end. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, that's definitely an interesting story of truth. Could also just be the FA cooking up a good narrative for one of our most legendary players. Um, I have also... It could always be that. I've also gone uh, back in history, and I hate to make this a pissing contest, but I've gone way further back in history than you. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, big man. Uh, at the current rate of scoring in the Premier League, we've obviously had you know su- such an amazing amount of goals so far, but if we kept up this rate of scoring, we would end the season with 1,363 goals scored. In other words, 1363. 1363 was also the year that football was banned in the UK on Sundays in order for people to be allowed to practice archery. (laughs) And if that isn't useless trivia, I don't know what is. Coincidence? (laughs) Um, That's a cool one, yeah. It's funny how uh, football's progressed, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, in a way, is how it's progressed, but also the fact that it had to be banned so people can practice archery. I think that just says that we've always been a nation of soccer hooligans. Do you think that the um, the archery uh, association had a lot of pull that back then? 
didn't want them uh, cutting into their archery. I, I should say they had a lot of pull, because what are you going to do with a guy who has a bow and arrow against the 1363? You give him what he Ex- wants. Exactly. Very nice. Fantastic. Looking at um, the next uh, team up in our one signing in January, Manchester City. Um, I have looked at Manchester City here, and I think that unlike any of these other teams, except maybe Chelsea, you can look at Man City, and money just isn't really an issue. They're going to go out there, and if you know someone says, "Oh, we want a really high price to them as a way of deterring them," Man City are just going to go, "Okay, here it is." Um, I think that where Man City for me okay. really, really hurt. I like how you've uh, you've prefaced this by being like, this is just a wildly non-realistic signing. <laughs> I actually don't think it's that unrealistic. I do think it would be... Okay, I, I, right, I think right. the player would end up being way overpriced because of the context, but I think that if any team would match this massive overvaluation, it would be Man City. Um, it's messy. And I, <laughs> yeah, messy. Uh, no, I, th- I think the thing with City that they have an issue is they, don't, just, they just don't have an answer to Aguero. Um, when he goes out, you know, injured, and he's he's routinely absent. He misses at least a third of each season. Whether he's injured, he's just come back from injury here and immediately gone back out again. Amazing, amazing player. Unfortunately, he's just got hamstrings made of tissue paper. So I think they need a, a striker who can be a bit of a consistent backup. And I don't think Jesus is that player. I think they really struck gold when they had Ed and Jacko all those years ago, but they just haven't really found a Jacko type replacement till he left. Um, and, and City just do falter when they don't have Aguero. Um, I think that the striker sure that do. they could bring in, who already has knowledge of the league, he's a proven goal scorer in the league, but I do think that because of these factors and the fact that he's English, would make him come at a massive premium, is Danny Ings. Interesting. Um, yeah, I could definitely see. It's a realistic signing, to be fair. I think that C- City also love to sign English players because of the whole homegrown you know, squad re- re- requisition. Um, because they sign so many players from abroad, they always need to keep the English levels in the squad uh, at a reasonable balance. And I think that Danny Ings is the kind of player, you know, I-, I think it could potentially be a win-win for all clubs because I think Southampton could just go out there and say, we want £85 million for him and that would help them reinforce the rest of their squad with tons of new players. City would happily pay that because, you know, it's City and Danny Ings would, I think, relish the chance to to play at a club where he's going to get a reasonable amount of game time because, as we said, Aguero's out a lot um, and he's, he's probably going to flourish. Yeah. Um, I like where your head's at. I also think Danny Ings could do a pretty good job in that side, especially... You know, we were talking last week about how his creative play is coming on in leaps and bounds. Mm, yeah, exactly. And I think it would just be so interesting to see him, you know, no disrespect to the, the players he's got behind him at Southampton, but imagine putting him at the top of a midfield that consists of the likes of Bernardo Silva and Kevin De Bruyne. If he got 22 goals last season, how many is he going to get the next season? 50? Yeah, no, very true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, personally, um, I found Man City difficult because... On the face of it, they've got problems in a couple of different key areas. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have adequately replaced Fernandinho, for example. But the fact that they're trying and they've got Rodri at the moment makes me hesitant. I don't think it's realistic to expect them to sign another player of that ilk mm-hmm. in January. Um, similarly, even if it's hypothetical, I cannot honestly justify spending any more money on the defence, no matter how wobbly <laughs> it feels at times. So I, I can tell someone who can. Oh god, I've gone in a similar vein to you. I've gone for a slightly different player um, with a different profile, but I again agree that Aguero being out is the a main the main problem with City because they can always outscore their opponents. But 
with no Aguero in the side, they get frustrated much too often. Mm-hmm. So, the player that I've gone for is someone that will be on the radar for a lot of European football fans, but maybe less so for um, just out-and-out English fans, Andrei Kramaric. Ooh, okay. So, this is a guy who is 29 at the moment, and I think that that's pretty much the perfect age because... I think that ultimately what this signing would be is someone who can take over for the last few years of Sergio Aguero's um, reign while they look to scout the long-term successor. So I think that at 29, he's pretty perfectly poised. I think that he is a proven goal scorer. He scored consistently one goal every two games for Hoffenheim for the last four years. Uh, He's really good at drifting out and linking up play with everyone across across the back line, sorry, the front line. Um, and I think that he would be a really good fit tactically for Pep Guardiola. Yeah, and he also has, you know, Premier League experience. He played for Leicester um, back in the 2015-16 season, although, you know, he, he, did he wasn't indeed, one of the star yeah. players. Uh, but... He didn't have the, the best season, but I think it can definitely be argued that he is a far different player now than he was then, four years on. Um, and he also would be joining a very different side to the Leicester of 2015-16. But you're right, he played 15 games for them and scored two goals that year. So, I mean, it's not great, is it? But it's not great, but, but I'm, I'm going to stick with so, it. Sometimes that I can be the making that, of a player. He might have gone away to Hoffenheim and sort of had in the back of his mind, right, that's the intensity that's demanded in the Premier League. I'm going to work on that aspect of my game. And he might come back, go into the Premier League, and you know what, he's seen it all before, he's prepared for it, pops right in. So, I, yeah, I, I agree. I can see that as a good signing. Uh, going over to Man United, uh, and uh, I mean, unless you're going for him, I think we're going to disappoint listeners who are United fans when we don't say Jaden Sancho. It's Jaden Sancho. <laughs> I have not gone for Jaden Sancho. It is Jaden Jancho. Someone... <laughs> I've gone for someone on the other end of the pitch. Actually. Okay. Um, I have gone for a centre-back again. It's my third centre-back mm-hmm. um, because I just, I, I don't think that any good will come from by another attacking-minded player when they've got such a like a cluster of different weird players that might all work well together but equally could trip each other up mm-hmm. and not engage. I don't think there's any sort of clear definition for what that attack looks like yet. Yeah. So I'm hesitant to put anyone else to drop them in um, and just see if they play well. So my signing is Ben White. Okay, nice. I think I think that's you know sturdy centre back again. Well, he hasn't got Premier League experience per se yet. Really, he's had a few games, but um, yeah, he's actually got a very similar profile to the player I've gone for. But but you know, walk, walk through Ben White and, and give us a bit more about that decision. Yeah, so I think um, ultimately it needs to be a player, and it should be a player for a long term. Uh, I think that Man U again are a club that put an emphasis on fostering young English talent. So in that sense, he very much fits the bill for what the club's been trying to do over the last few years. Mm-hmm. I think that at like 22, 23, he's, he's a much better prospect than trying to sign someone who's like 18, 19. Because ultimately, I would like this player to come in and instantly prove to be an upgrade to the current offering. Mm. And I do think Ben White offers that. He was really solid for Leeds last year. He's shown that he's been really solid for Brighton this year as well. I think despite Brighton not playing necessarily very well as an overall defence at times, he has shown himself to be a 
capable player. Um, and I think that he is grounded enough and straightforward enough a player and a person that he wouldn't have the same problems that Harry Maguire has had. Mm-hmm. But that's maybe me being ambitious. That's interesting. So I agree with all of your reasons because they're more or less the same reasons that I chose my player. I think that, again, yeah, it's really important to have a player that is young but also ready to get into the squad. So you don't want to go with someone as young as like an 18-year-old or a a 19-year-old. You want someone who's got a good amount of games under their belt, whether it's the Premier League or or a similar level. I also agree that you don't want to go for an attacking player at the moment. I think they've got so many options in that area that even if it isn't going to work out, they need to try and figure out something from the puzzle pieces there and adding more is just going to be a too many cooks type situation um i personally have gone for declan rice um i think that you know mm, nice. he's 21 i think he's one of the most exciting players in this position we always talk about how good he is and how he plays for sort of west ham and is one of the starring people in that role he was top five players in the league for last season for both tackles and interceptions he can operate as a defensive midfielder he can also operate as a center back so i think that it's great that you can have a player especially when we have these systems of you know players being dropped back but you can play him in a pivot if you want to partner you know either Maguire or Lindelof or even have a back three he can slot in there he's six foot one he's very tactically flexible and I think that he would represent an immediate upgrade to the options they have in terms of defensive midfielders. Because you look at them at the moment with that, and you've got Fred, who is fine, and also Scott McTominay, who I think, you know, McTominay for me, he's a, he's a squad player, he's a good squad player. But you spoke quite recently about, for example, Yerry Mina at Everton. And I think the phrase that you used was that he was a good defender, but not a league winning defender. And I think the same applies to Scott McTominay. I think that he's a, a good midfielder. I think he's a solid midfielder to have. I don't think that any team that has him as a regular starter is going to be challenging for the league and maybe not even challenging for, you know, the, the Champions League spots. Obviously, he's not been necessarily yeah, a, a, a regular starter for United, but they seem to be looking at him as the future of that defensive midfield. And I, I, I don't think that they're going anywhere if that's the plan. Um, you know, barring, of course, major improvement from him. So I think Declan Rice, yeah. He's a promising player. He's young, but he's already played several seasons in the Premier League. He's very much up to the task. I think he's the kind of player they could bring in, put straight in, and he would just continue to get better and better and better and maybe end up you know, having legendary status at the club by the time he's 28. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that um, he'd be a good signing for them. I, I like the... I think he's, he's the right profile player for them to sign as well. I agree with you there. I think... Um, Ultimately, the decision I made, the reason why I went for an out-and-out centre-back was that I vaguely hoped that, and still do hope that, I believe that if if Man you could sort out their back four, their midfield would also become naturally a lot more stable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the moment, it's just all in a bit of disarray. Matic doesn't really know what he's doing. and He can't dictate the midfield. Pogba's dropping too deep when he gets played. Fred, I actually think, is a really good player. But I don't think that he's allowed to be the player that he should be or is in the current system. So it's, it's a bit yeah, of a chicken egg situation, I'm... isn't it? Like, is it <laughs> are the midfield is all over the place because they're having to cover for the defense, or are the defense all over the place because the midfield are in the wrong positions, or you know, you know? Yeah, Joe, you know it's tricky. I think the main the main thing is like, Man, you are the most confused tactically top side in the Prem at the moment. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're doing. And I don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer really knows what he's doing. So as a result, I was like, just play it safe, go for a centre-back. But I think Declan Rice, 
while obviously he can play there as well, can also play in the midfield. And yeah, good signing. Great. So moving on to our last team of the uh, one signing in January before we wrap up with our final discussion, uh, looking at Spurs and who Spurs need. Uh, I have gone for a centre-back here. That seems to have been a common thread and maybe that's just because so many goals have gone in this season. But I think that Spurs... Are, they're capable of being a well-drilled outfit, um, and I think that that's largely in part to Marie, due to Mourinho. But I do think that at the back, some of the weaknesses they have are centrally. I think you know Davinson Sanchez came in, and they expected he was going to be like a really sturdy, you know, Colombian centre-back, you know, maestro, and just make loads of hard tackles and not let anyone past him. And I just think he's re- he's, yeah, sure. he's full of errors. Uh, he can have a decent game, but I don't look at any part of his game and think he's exceptional. I think Eric Dyer is not at the level, um, and I think when you put put him in as a centre back to that team, it's kind of just you know it, it's like using a, a plank to hold up a, a window that's closing. It's like a it's a, a fill in that's not going to last for long, and they're going to get found out a number of times, and have already when he plays in that position. And I think it's really important to note that Spurs. One of the areas where they've looked strongest in recent years, obviously you can look at Harry Kane and Heung-Win Son as like, you know, currently the, the two main players and obviously over the last four or five years have been two of the most exciting players there. But I think something that is maybe a little bit of an unsung hero for Spurs and especially took the forefront in my mind when they had that cup run to the Champions League final was the centre-back partnership of Toby Alderweireld and Jan Vertonghen. And I think that that yeah, doesn't get talked about enough in terms of Spurs because I think that you know, it's 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 a very obvious thing, but you can have attackers doing really well. But if you have a team playing with the confidence that they're only going to concede one or no goals in the game, it just relaxes everyone. And I think that is a big part of the reason why they had that massively successful year. I don't think it's a coincidence that they then lost Alderweireld and things just haven't looked as solid at the back for them outside of Mourinho games where he just goes, nope, no goals today. Um, and sometimes that comes at the expense of scoring goals. So, uh, so, yeah, so, so, incidentally, <laughs> sorry, I talked all the way around my, my signing there. Um, the centre-back I would get, as a result, is someone who knows the league. A uh, common theme here um, is Lewis Dunk. Uh, I think, you know, as Brighton's captain, he is not only a solid defender, but he's a defender who knows how to marshal a back line. I think he's physically impressive. Uh, you know, he's not necessarily the fastest defender in the world, but I think he compensates for that with good use of space and, uh, and understanding positions. Um so yeah, I think he would fit in that team well. And I think he would fit in really well with Mourinho. I think he could do. Also, weirdly, for some reason, I just feel like he'd play well with Matty Doherty. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, centre-back's obviously something that they need to invest in and improve on because you can't just lose a player like Toby Alderweireld and not replace them, as you say. Oh, Yamatongan, even. Sorry, Yamatongan. So integral to their um, defensive solidity. Um, in the previous years and I definitely agree with you that that partnership was one of the best partnerships in the Prem for a number of years Um, I actually have gone the opposite way which is nice I feel like Mm. it's good that we've actually differed on uh, a couple Um, I have gone for an attacking midfielder Uh, the reason I've done that is because while a lot has been made of Harry Kane's incredible creative new side to his game that he's been growing for the last few years I think ultimately the reason why he's had to do that this year especially is because they've lost Christian Eriksen they haven't replaced him with anyone and it's now a necessity rather than a tactically flexible option Mm -hmm. so the player that I've gone for is a player that Spurs have um, signed before he used to play for them 
You're not getting Raphael van der Vaart out of retirement, are you? <laughs> Luka Modric. Um, no, no, it is not Raphael van der Vaart. It is um, the Iceman, Gilfie Sigurdsson. Mm, okay, that's interesting. So, from Sigurdsson's perspective, he has had a great couple of years at Everton as their creative hub. He's now been pretty much completely ousted from the starting lineup due to the signings that have been made. He still has a lot to offer. I think he's still definitely top 10 Premier League standard player. Um, he's very hardworking. He's played at Spurs before. And the fact that he went back to Swansea after playing for them again shows that he wouldn't mind going back to the same club again. Um, and I think that with him in the midfield, it would free up um, Harry Kane to stay in the attack and also drop back if he wanted to, but wouldn't have to. He would have more time to do what he does best. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think there have been. Yeah, and I, th- I think I think Gilvy Sigerson would be a Mourinho player as well because he does work hard on the ball and he does put a shift in in midfield. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'd be interested to see that signing as well. And obviously, you know, he understands how the club works. He's he was a bit of a fan favorite, so he would be received, you know, quite well by the fans, and that can obviously always help. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good signing. Um, just as an additional little bonus question to to wrap this up to you um, before we move into our next discussion. Who do you think wins in a hypothetical six side between our six signings? Between our six signings? Our six signings line up. Your your six signings are one team. My six signings are another team. Who do you think is winning that game? I quite like my signings, man. Let's hear yours all over again. So I have Dominic Sobolai, Manuel Akanji, Marcelo Brozovic, uh, Danny Ings, Declan. Can you can you set them up for me, please? What formation are you going for? Uh, I am going for a, a very simple two-two-two. Um, I'm going to have Akanji and uh, Akanji and Lewis Dunk holding it down in the middle. I'm going to have Brozovic uh, just playing a little bit ahead of Declan Rice in the midfield, and then I'm going to have Sobolai just coming off the shoulder of Danny Ings. It's quite it's quite a potent six-a-side team. That's not bad. Uh, I mean. Um... It's going to be high scoring because neither of us have signed a keeper. <laughs> uh, I do also like your midfield of Declan Rice and Brozovic. That fills me with uh, many fears. Um, mine would be a 3-1-2. Upa Meccano, Ben White and Stefan Devridge, which I think would be Difficult to break a pretty down. solid back three. Uh, and then Gilfie Sigurdsson in midfield, who would maybe be trying to be, do a lot. And then Zaha and Andre Kramaric up front. You're getting overrun in midfield, man. You're you. getting absolutely punished in midfield. Sigurdsson is on the floor crying. I think I've got to give it to you. Yeah, I'll take that for what it's but worth, which is absolutely in, nothing. In my defence, I was not aware that this was going to be a part of the, the sign. <laughs> no, neither. I, I just thought um, it would be a funny, funny one to think up on the fly. I've decided that, man, you were going to sign Rajan Langer instead of Ben White. How do you like yeah, that? I've decided the Spurs are going to get a time machine and sign Prime Rude Hullet. What is it? I'm sticking with it. Wrapping up uh, the episode with our final discussion, let's have a look at referees in the Premier League because I think it's really important to have a discussion uh, about some of the, you know, obviously every single week so far this season, we've had a look at some really horrendous mistakes that have been made by officials. Um, and there are some, you know, examples of things being done differently in other leagues uh, around the world. And I think the way that things are going this season has prompted a lot of questions. John Cross, the journalist of the Mirror, has voiced that he thinks that this is the worst season of officiating in the Premier League since its inception. Several others have piled in and said that it's because of the referees that VAR is being used wrongly. 
And I do think it begs the question for us to ask and try to answer, is officiating getting worse or is this just a recency bias and all of this seems worse because it's happened this weekend or last weekend? Sure. So, I mean, I guess like the more technology that we have to look at decisions and break down whether or not they were correct, the the harder it is to hide behind bad officiating. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess that's one thing. I think like the level of scrutiny is higher than it's ever been. I also think that other factors maybe to take into account are the fact that you kind of argue that sportsmanship is getting worse. Players are doing all they can to deceive referees more and more. Captains no longer have the power in the dressing room and on the pitch that they used to in terms of like marshalling their um, players. So nowadays players just like all run around the referee more and more to try and influence their decisions. And now they've got in the last few years this new source of woe, which is VAR. And not only that, but from the very start when VAR was first introduced, the company that manages Premier League referees, which is called, if anyone's ever heard of it, I had not, the Professional Game Match Officials Limited, PGMOL. Um, They actually instructed the referees at the start of the 1920 season to use the referee reviewal areas on the sides of the pitch as sparingly as possible Mm -hmm. because it could take up to 90 seconds to review something. Yeah, to to prevent delays, yeah. Exactly. Um, And I think that that coupled with the fact that it's... I think that they're basically just stuck between a rock and a hard place because they can't tell VAR to look at things. It's only VAR telling them to look at things. And VAR can only do things if play hasn't restarted. So there's like a really small window of time to look at things. There's no communication between referees and the backroom officials. And they've been told that they have to prioritize speed over accuracy, which means that all they do is just they just leave it. And if nothing gets done about it, people blame the ref. But the, the referee has nothing to do other than follow VAR when he's told to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you make some really good points, but I would slightly contest a few of them. Or not contest, not even the right word. I think just add additional information. So I think um, okay. the, the PG model thing you were talking about, obviously at the start of this season, that was then reversed and referees were instructed to use the screen a lot more often because it, it became yeah, yeah, I was gonna, immediately apparent uh, last season that if you watch any football from any other leagues, that in every other league, referees almost always go to the screen. And even in the Champions League and the Europa League, when, when applicable, the referees were going to the screens where it never really happened in the Premier League. Um, and referees have now been instructed to do that more often. Um, and additionally, I think, you know, you talk about like, how is it the referees fall sometimes? And, and I agree with that sometimes. I agree that VAR has maybe in some, it has in some senses stripped them of, you know, blame. But I also think that works the other way as well. And I do think that sometimes referees have been a little bit more lenient with decisions because they don't fear necessarily the backlash. I mean, you think about a lot of the decisions that have happened. For example, taking a very recent example, say Maguire and Aspilicueta. Now, the referee completely misses that. And he doesn't take a second to sort of... He, he's been able to get away with missing that entirely because there's sort of the crutch of VAR. The, pro- the problem then no longer is... But he saw it happen. If you if you look, the referee was in... That was in his line of vision. But, 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 and he did... But he's missed it as a foul, is my point. 
he's 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 he's, he's missed it as a foul. But the problem is no longer the referee has missed that. The problem then is just shirked over to VAR. And I think this is part of the reason why, in my opinion, and I, I welcome disagreement from from either you or or, or anyone else who who thinks I'm you know <laughs> being too harsh to the refs who are only human. But I do think that a big part of the reason why the refereeing has gotten worse and worse in the English game over the last few years, if I'm honest, and I think has sort of peaked here, is because there's no real accountability in the English game. It takes a tremendous amount for referees to be, you know, taken to account, to be suspended, demoted a league. Um, you know, this season, Milan hosted Roma uh, over at the Giuseppe, Giuseppe Miazza, and it was a really, really huge game, as it always is between these two sides. But Milan especially are looking really, really strong this season. They they were the last team in Europe's top five leagues to have a 100% win record, and the game ended 3-3. Uh, and in that game, there were two very controversial penalties. There was a controversial yellow card that was arguably a red card. The referee kind of just lost control of the game. As a result, the day after that game, the referee, um, Piero Giacomelli, and the VAR officer, Luigi Nasca, who were in charge of making sure that that game was upheld to the correct standard, have been suspended by the referee designator, Nicola Rizzoli, uh, for the next two games. And when they do come back to officiating, they'll have to start in Serie B, which is Italy's championships of second division. And I think that that is the kind of thing, obviously, yes, look, at the end of the day, referees are human. No one is expecting a referee to make 100% of the calls 100% of the time with laser sight vision. But there are so many big glaring errors that I think are being missed. And I think partly because referees are going, well, firstly, I've got VAR as a sort of, you know, armrest. And I don't, I mean, this isn't to absolve VAR, by the way. Or rather, the people behind VAR. This isn't to absolve them because I've, you know, I've got I've got half a mind to go after them as well. But I do think that the referees are sort of allowed to rest on their laurels a little bit in this league because there is no comeuppance and there is no accountability. Yeah, I I do agree with you that I think that the system needs to change around accountability. I do agree that the Italian example is, you know, it's like chalk and cheese. You look at it and you think, well, why don't we do that? We should do that. Um, the other part is it, it's hard to scapegoat referees when I don't think the system benefits them or is built for them at all. I mean, yes, you said that the um, the 2021 season is changing. The Premier League shareholders have agreed to increase or encourage the increased use of these um, RRAs, the re- referee reveal areas. But I think that that shows that they recognise that there was a real problem there until the start of this season. We're only five games into this one. So in terms of like building up until this point, I think that's been a real issue. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, the system's changed around them. So now they have another thing to think about rather than just purely refereeing the game. I do think an- another simple decision could be made around allowing referees to communicate freely with VAR and just say, I'm not sure about that. Could we just check it first? I also think that the... Um, the whole you can check things until play is restarted is pretty dumb. I think that it would be really simple for the ball goes out and the referee goes, just wait three seconds. The VAR is just completing their check. Okay, we're all good to go. I think that would be fine. and I really don't see who that would harm at all. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's a real... It hasn't been built with them in mind. Mm. And I don't want to just start throwing accusations around and start blaming people and like demoting people when ultimately I don't think that the people that will replace them will do any better because it's not supporting them. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's not an unfair take either. And I do, I mean, just looking at the whole, it kind of comes to the, um, you know, you know, looking at football, a lot of traditionalists often say, like, the mistakes are what make the game fun. And that's why you don't want, you know, for example, a referee to be replaced in 2050 with robo-ref and all the decisions are 100% correct. I just, it's difficult for me as first and foremost a fan of the game to watch so many games every single week in the Premier League that, you know, not just for the team that I want to win or the team that I support, but just in neutral games where I don't have any vested interest in the winner or loser, just the game being hampered by bad decisions. It's just difficult to watch as a lover of the sport. Yeah, it's so frustrating, but I don't think the problems with the refs, I mean, this whole like emphasis over speed shows that they they care more about the flow of the game than getting these decisions right. I think there's an aspect of blame to be apportioned elsewhere, definitely, and I think that VAR or the the team at Stockley Park are, are part to blame. So I don't think that I, I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, that VAR has come in at the same time that the referee decisions have gotten markedly worse. I don't think it's VAR itself. Again, I, I do think that that's partly to do with. Um, I think it was Gary Neville pointing out that you know a lot of the time the people who are in the vans at Stockley Park are junior referees, so they're sort of almost too timid to correct a Michael Oliver or a Chris Kavanagh and end up missing these things altogether, which is just like, well, what's the point in you being there? Um, but yeah, I think I, I think it's an interesting one. I, I don't think there is a correct answer because ultimately a referee's decisions are often subjective. There are some things that are very blatant yes-nos, but sometimes a lot of the decisions that you can look at as... Certainly one of the things that I always think is the sign of a good referee or a bad referee is, is the early yellow card thing. Um, and referees are sort of... There's like this unwritten rule in the referee handbook that you can't send someone off if they make a leg-breaking tackle inside 10 minutes, or you can't book someone if they make a really bad tackle. Um, and that is... Ultimately, it's subjective. Some referees decide to be more disciplinarian and book someone early to make a point. Some referees decide not to book someone early because it could ruin the flow of the game. Both have times where they make the game better. Both have times where they make the games worse. Um, so I, I think it's difficult. But I would love to encourage our listeners, if you have um, an opinion on this, or indeed anything we've talked about today, uh, to email us in at hosts at armchairanalyst.co.uk. Um, Rupert, I think that about does us for this week. Cam, I think it probably should. We're over 75 minutes and I've got a lot more to say and uh, let's save it for another day. All right. Well, Rupert, it was great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much and thank you everyone for listening. Bye, guys. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel. 